4: I'm WABE in Atlanta. Welcome to this Thursday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up later in the program, we'll find out what's happening inside Georgia State's micro mobility lab. And Fulton County Libraries are back open. We'll find out what changes have been implemented implemented. Those conversations coming up in just a moment. But first this Georgia Governor Brian Kemp is responding to Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms. The mayor this week, in addressing another past weekend of violence, cited the state's gun laws are problematic. In response to Mayor Bottoms, yesterday at the state capitol, Governor Kemp replied.
0: Well, I mean, that's ridiculous. That has nothing to do with the problems that we're seeing in Atlanta. The the gun laws on the books in Georgia are no different than they were in previous administrations, and we weren't seeing these kind of issues. I mean, look, people are fed up with this.
4: Kemp went on to add, "There's a need to be a tiered approach in addressing the crime.
0: We're seeing what's working right now, and that's people working together, state and local agencies, and actually putting boots on the ground to move the needle and lock these people up, uh, and especially these repeat offenders that you know get out, you know get locked up one night and they're on the street the next day."
4: Staying with Atlanta news, a small group of activists gathered in downtown Atlanta last evening to protest the reinstatement of a police officer who was fired last year after shooting and killing a black man in a Wendy's parking parking lot. Atlanta's civil service board cited Officer Garrett Roth was, quote, not afforded his right to due process when he was quickly fired last year. According to Atlanta Police Department, Roth will remain on administrative leave until these charges are resolved. And in a statement, Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms defended the city's quick action to fire off, saying, quote, Given the volatile state of our city and nation last summer, the decision to terminate this officer after after he fatally shot Mr. Brooks in the back was the right thing to do. She goes on to say, had immediate action not been taken, I firmly believe that the public safety crisis we experienced during that time would have been significantly worse. Close quote. In other news, it was the best news in over a year related to the coronavirus. CDC officials declared the nation is on a positive path. But yesterday, Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky did add this. The models give us an important reminder. They project that local
3: conditions and emerging variants are putting many states at risk for increases in COVID-19 cases, especially if we do not increase the rate of vaccinations and if we do not keep our current mitigation strategies in place until we have a critical mass of people vaccinated.
4: Now, here in Georgia, more than 6.3 million vaccine doses have been administered. And right now, Georgia is at 27 percent of the state or Georgians are fully vaccinated. And today, in addition to these numbers, we want to provide you a little more information as to who exactly has been vaccinated. According to the state's vaccine dashboard, 55 percent of vaccinated Georgians are women compared to the men where it's 43 percent. What y'all doing, fellas? And 55.9% of vaccine recipients in Georgia are white, 23% are black, and 6.6% are Asian. And the remaining percentage is classified as other by the Georgia Department of Public Health. Now, in related news, if you're a Braves fan, and I know y'all are, I'm from St. Louis, I root for the Braves, but I know y'all are Braves fans, and you also want to get a a COVID-19 vaccine, guess what? You're in luck. Brave CEO Derek Schiller says the team will offer vaccinations to fans at their upcoming games out at Truist Park on Friday and Saturday. The shots will be available Friday from 6 to 9 p.m. and Saturday 5 to 9 p.m. while supplies last. Also, guess what? They come with two free Braves tickets. There you have it. The stadium will offer both the Johnson & Johnson vaccine for patients 18 or older and the first dose of the Pfizer to those 16 and up. And again, we want to let you know, the shots will be available Friday from 6 to 9 p.m. and Saturday, 5 to 9 p.m. while supplies last and they come with two free Braves tickets. Don't ask me where you will be sitting. You're just getting free tickets. Go with that. This weekend also marks the first time the Braves will return to quote, full fan capacity at the home stadium. This is Closer Look. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. As mentioned, the city's civil service board did reinstate former APD officer Garrett Roth after his termination in regards to the shooting death of Rayshard Brooks. And as you recall, Brooks' killing led to calls for policy changes from the city level and obviously within the Atlanta Police Department, but also changes within the neighborhood where Brooks was killed. And joining me as she did last year as a resident and member of the Neighborhood Planning Unit, as we call it, MPUV, I'm joined now by Demisha Luster. Thank you again for taking the time. I appreciate it. Hi, it's good to see you again. Same here. You know, so much has happened. Let's begin here. Just it's so much has happened between obviously last summer and this time, and 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 now. Just your overall reflection on what's taking place in our nation, as it relates to you know what we're seeing with, sadly, even some more killings uh, with police involved, with police officers involved, the verdict involving involving uh, Officer Derek Chauvin. Just kind of your thoughts on all of this in a year.
3: Um, I think if anything this year has shown us that we have to have, um, patience with our request, um, the, the changes that we are asking for, not only are they systemic changes, but they are also long-term changes. So when we listen to like studies and the studies are, oh, they were followed over 10 and 15 years, like the adverse childhood experiences study, Mm -hmm. that's what we're asking for. Um and people are expecting this just hey, it's a new day, he's guilty, you can't shoot us anymore. And that's not how it works.
4: Mm-hmm. When you say patience and where are you are you hoping this would start? Federal level, a lot of people say it has to start at local level, but some will argue that federal legislation sets the tone. Where where do you think it needs to begin?
3: Um, I think all levels have to work at the same time. But one thing that we absolutely control is ourselves. And so it starts right here in our homes and in our communities, deciding that gun violence is something that we don't stand for, we don't tolerate. Valuing social and emotional learning, understanding that children are little people with big voices and big emotions and not suppressing it. You know, just those small little things seem small but when you're shaping a child and they're developing and they become the adults that don't listen and do what they want and then those people, you know, it, it just carries on throughout life and then we have more children and they become part of who we are. So, you know, we have to start valuing and pushing and being steadfast with things in our communities, yes. But then also you have to look at the the local, the state, the federal, all of these different layers and You also have to remember that there are people in positions of power that don't realize that they're in position of power. And when you don't realize that you stand in a position of power, it's hard for you to understand that there are people who are powerless or in a less fortunate situation than you. And those people are typically the ones making the decisions.
4: Let's back up for a moment for our listeners who may not be familiar with the neighborhood that we're going to focus on today, which is NPUV. And this is also one of those communities where you have an overlap of city council members, an overlap of, of different neighborhood planning units. Uh, tell them what area we're talking about you and I are focusing on.
3: So we're talking about uh, the city of Atlanta's Neighborhood Planning Unit V, located in town south of downtown southwest Atlanta. So we're talking about Summerhill, Peoples Town, Mechanicsville, Adel Park, Capitol Gateway, and Pittsburgh.
4: And when you... Think about this community and all these different neighborhoods. And what's interesting, the neighborhoods that you mentioned, some have already experienced economic development. And here comes that G word, gentrification, however you define mm-hmm. that. Some are going to are on the verge of it and others may not be quite there, but there are concerns. But these also are neighborhoods that you talk about policing in these communities of color, mostly, and then also violence. So there are two Two issues that you all have been grappling with, not just in terms of policing, but also Mm -hmm. gun violence in your community. Mayor Bottoms, in responding to the crime wave uh, this year, and said that she thought it had a lot to do with the state's gun laws. What's your reaction to that?
3: Overall, deciding to use a gun is a personal choice. So... Yes, there are laws, but ultimately you make the decision on if you're gonna shoot someone or not. Um, And so that's kind of where my work begins, Mm -hmm. right? At the personal community level, it's how do we get people to use their words instead of guns? Is it really that serious? Were you actually disrespected or did you misunderstand the communication? So just things like that, um, that's my focus. As far as gun laws go, I try not to really comment on it too much just because at the end of the day, we know that similar to big pharma, guns is a money business. And outside of having a radical shift in representation, those things are going to be what they are. But what can we control?
4: Well, let's talk about what you all can control, because last year and I spoke to so many of the community leaders, you all had a list that you wanted Certain city council members or the entire council to look at. We began this conversation with you saying we have to be patient. We know that there's a process here. Let's revisit that list for a moment. You all wanted more resources in your community to maybe combat uh, tendencies for, if you want to put it on the younger folks, basically something for them to do. Initiatives for them to be involved and maybe workforce development. It's been a year now. Has anything happen in the community that you think will help maybe deter young folks from taking a different approach this summer? Has anything happened in your neighborhood?
3: Um, so I want to start this answer off with pointing out two key things. The first thing is, is that MPUV has three city council members representing the area. Mm-hmm. So you have um, Carla Smith, who is not running for re-election in this election. Mm-hmm. You have Joyce Shepherd who is um, responsible for the Pittsburgh neighborhood, which is where Rayshard Brooks was killed. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you have Cleta Winslow, who is over um, in Mechanicsville. So Mm -hmm. that's the first thing I want to point out.
4: And they're all long, long time. Council members, Carla Smith did make the announcement yesterday that after more than two decades or nearly two decades, she will not seek reelection. We should, and we should also note uh, we have always had a chance to speak with Joyce Shepard, Um, We've done a few segments with uh, Carla Smith out in the community. Cleta Winslow has never answered any of our requests for for interviews, Um, but I'll let you go ahead and finish.
3: Yes. So um, that's the first point I wanted to bring up. The second point is that when you come together as a community, you make a list of demands um, or just anything in general. You have to remember that that list represents five very different communities, because even though we are a planning unit together, our communities look very different. Summer Hill looks super different from everyone else, mm-hmm. you know, and not just Summer Hill, but other areas as well. And so when you take that into consideration and you move forward and you're able to unify five communities, you're kind of working against time. So you have to remember that you are expecting a response you are expecting to put these things out there. And when you don't have a response, you have to have some sort of accountability measure. So when I say have patience, what I mean is you have to be able to present what you want out into the world. And you have to make sure that it gets into the hands of the people that you want a response from. Mm -hmm. In the event that you don't get a response, then you have to figure out how you hold those people accountable. And so in comparison to when we spoke a year ago, that's kind of where things left. It's we had this rally and we got everyone together and I sat here and typed these list of demands and we're all together. And then when we didn't really get a response, no one pushed further. And again, I'm just one person and I can only speak for myself and I don't represent my full community, but we didn't push the ball further as a community. So that's something that I really wanted to point out. But when you talk about things that have happened in the last year, mm-hmm. organizations like mine, the Urban Advocate, mm-hmm. Chris 180, mm-hmm. the N.E.E. Casey Foundation, um, we came together well before the Rayshard Brooks incident happened. And we started doing trauma response um, and gun-related violence prevention. Alfred Garner of Chris 180 and myself, we are knocking on doors within a 48-hour turnaround of gun-related violence problems in our community. And we garnered enough traction that we have Cure Violence now located in Atlanta.
4: And we have done several segments with Chris 180, and yes. um, they are they are always working in the community, particularly as it relates to mental health and, and trauma. Is it time through your lens, Demisha, mm-hmm. for new city council representation? We know that Councilman Carla smith is not going to seek reelection. Through This is your opinion. Do you think it's time for folks to to move off the city council for the, Um, for those neighborhoods we've been talking about.
3: I absolutely feel that it is time that we have representation that is a little more in tune with our communities. Um, I myself personally feel that there should be term limits. I don't think anyone should sit in a seat for 20 years. I think that's a little asinine. Um, And we do have solid people that are running. You have Jason Dozier working again for the district four seat and he lost with a very slim margin last time. And I think people tend to forget how slim these margins can be. Even the mayoral election was less than a thousand votes. And so we have to have these conversations to know that we need and we deserve better representation.
4: I don't want to pick on Mr. Dozier because I have not interviewed him or have a conversation with him, but How do you ensure a community that even with its new folks running, because everybody runs and says, I'm going to be this advocate for change for this community and communities like the one we're talking about, the ones that you live in and in the neighborhoods you mentioned. You know, when you talk about I want to be that agent, that change agent, you hear that a lot. Y'all have heard that. Y'all have been promised benefits. So for I think for some and I've had people tell me residents say this, I just stick with the same person because at least I know I can reach out to them or. You know, what's going to be different this time? Can you understand folks who've maybe are just tired of hearing the same old, same old, and then a person gets elected, they don't do nothing. I'm just telling you what they tell me.
3: Oh, no, I hear it all the time. And I guess I choose to be optimistic when we have something new presented to us and you see people showing up in ways that the current leadership hasn't shown up in. Um, You know, what I can say is that, I've seen certain people running in positions. I've shared leadership roles with them, whether it's on a civic association board, whether it's on a task force, whether it's on a, a stewardship, I've seen their leadership and I've seen their willingness to show up even when others haven't.
4: The summer is coming up. We know there is legislation as it relates to really trying to find youth employment this summer, um, there's a lot of initiatives that are that are out there, concerns about what folks call them the water kids or the water boys, folks mm-hmm. concerned about that it's a summer now that the COVID-19 restrictions are, are lax and folks are going to be out. Do you have some concerns about another violent summer as it relates to gun violence in your community?
3: Um, Absolutely. But I wouldn't, for us, I wouldn't call it a violent summer because we experience violence every day here. So and it's important to know that the violence that we experience in our communities it tends to be more personal than you look at violence in in bughead, far road, and and at gas stations. It's not the same type of violence. So even mm-hmm. if we were to say, hey, we're gonna put this law in place, you have completely different situations going on. So you're not so, talking
4: about criminal activities such as carjackings or or that nature, is that which I want to be very clear for our listeners. So you yeah. can take the time now so, to.
3: There is a small amount of carjackings, Mm -hmm. you know, when um, the sergeants come to our monthly meetings, the MPU and the the civic association meetings, they do mention some carjackings here or there, but a lot of this violence is, whether it's drug related, whether it's gang related, whether it's um, a a household related type of thing, a lot of these things, they are more personable. Mm -hmm. So they tend to have relationships with the people that they are committing violence against, or it tends to be more community related.
4: Demisha just told me that the commanders come out from Atlanta police department. They come out into the community. Would you like to see more patrols and is it important that those patrols include more people of color officers, more diverse group of officers out there Would that make a difference?
3: Um, I think one thing that really made a huge difference, and I want to say this was summer 2019, we worked with, um, at the time, it was, I think, uh, Lieutenant Baldini and Major Sinzer, and he was able to place foot officers at Dunbar Recreation Center in Mechanicsville, which is a high um, traffic area at all times. Mm -hmm. And so that made a difference because the officers you know, they bonded with our community, they got to see the faces, people started to garner respect. And that was a different type of relationship versus just riding through and patrolling. And I understand that everyone can't have foot officers everywhere. But if you know that there's a dense area, especially a recreation park, where there is an elementary school, Mm -hmm. I think it's in arms, there's a, uh, the recreation center, the pool is opening this year, the basketball nets are back up. Mm -hmm. All of those things are important. A lot of older community members, they want cameras. Oh, cameras, this, cameras, that. One thing that we know tried and true is that actual criminals do not care about cameras. They're going to commit their crimes, whether a camera is there or not. And so the more cameras you add, you also open your own self up, you know, when you're running the stoplight right in front of, well, not the stoplight, the uh, stop sign in front of Dunbar Center where the Marta is, and you run through it, and now you have a camera there and it may or may not read tags now. Cause these are things that your council members put aside their money for. You open yourself up to these hundred dollar tickets. Like they're getting up in, I think it's Gwinnett. They were saying that there's been a whole bunch of tickets from these cameras,
4: mm-hmm.
3: So you open yourself up to those types of things too. Um, a lot of it is you having to choose to be a better person.
4: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: And I, that's where we have to get to. So, um, having life skills classes, having social emotional learning when uh, organizations like Cure Violence come out and they focus on the, the highest risk people to commit crimes and building those relationships and redirecting behavior. All of this is long term. Nothing is immediate.
4: Mayor Bottoms, her administration is going to put together a type of committee or task force to address ways to address the crime. How hopeful are you that it will include community leaders?
3: Um, I'm sure it'll com- include community leaders, but it'll probably include the same, um, the same people that are on everything. Um, and it's, it's not to be shady, but people like, um, I got you, I don't know, whoever it is, we got you, yeah. on everything,
4: <laughs> the the familiar names, Yeah, but what, but you would, would you want to be a part of that? For example. Because you live in the you live in the neighborhood, you're 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 an advocate. You are a community leader. You, you we've just spent the last 15 minutes talking about the importance of having a voice from the community. So I'm asking you, would well, then you want to be a part of that?
3: If the opportunity was presented to me, I would absolutely show up for my community, um, but I would not voluntarily subject myself to something that seems fruitless and also kind of, I don't want to say baseless, Mm -hmm. but everyone is expecting these leaders in these positions to turn out these immediate results. This is not an immediate results thing. And until people are firm and saying, hey, I am your council representative. This is the plan. We need to do these things. This is going to take time. We are here. Lay out the roadmap and say, we are here. We need people to buy into this at the community level. We need people to hold people accountable. If you see your cousin saying he's gonna go shoot somebody, tell him to stop. Try to stop it. If you feel like you're in danger, you have to call the police. I understand it's your cousin, he's gonna shoot somebody. This is not right. Like we have to put these things in place and it's long-term. So unless the conversation is This is our five year plan. At year three, we come back to the table, look at it. This is our next five years. Understanding that this is not a I'm just going to say I'm going to ban all guns in the city. And if you have one, you get arrested. That's not the Mm -hmm. solution. I'm going to add more cameras. That's not the solution. It makes people feel better, but it's not the solution. So if we're not talking real tangible change, I'm not interested in having the conversation.
4: Demisha Luster neighborhood member of the neighborhood planning unit v and also a community member leader Demisha. as always thank you for taking the time and coming on the program we will always continue to ask you all out there in your neighborhoods to be a voice for your neighborhood at least on this program we'll get all the sides all the viewpoints thank you so much Demisha.
3: thank you for having me
0: And Closer
4: Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Public libraries across the nation last year were forced to close, why we know, due to COVID-19. That included all 34 branches in Fulton County. And at the time, I spoke with Gail hunter Holloman, Executive Director for the Fulton County Library System.
2: It's a trial for us. For libraries, we have to stay relevant, and we will and I think that our, our patrons look forward to our doing so. And so that's what we're trying to do so that we don't disappoint them any more than we have to. Uh, it is not ideal by any means.
4: That was then. This is now. This week, a return to normal, sort of. So Gail Hunter Holloman joins me again. Executive Director Holloman, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it.
2: Oh, thank you so much, Rose. I appreciate you having me on.
4: Wow. When you hear that clip from last year and you think about where we are now, what goes through your mind? Oh,
2: we've come a long way. I mean, seriously, uh, professionally and personally, we are so excited that we are back in action, so to speak. We know it's only two days a week right now, Tuesdays and Saturdays, but it's made all the difference. People came back on yesterday, well, what was today? Thursday, two days ago, and uh, they were just just overjoyed. They were glad to get inside of those branches. They had not seen uh, the renovation results, and it just made all the difference in so many lives. and. Just so many smiling faces.
4: Well, let's go ahead and get this out of the way for our listeners. So again, how many days a week will Fulton County Libraries be open for now?
2: Well, we're still doing curbside service, except on Tuesdays from 10 to 7 and Saturdays from 10 to 6, the public will be able to come in to browse, use computers, all of these are on a limited time schedule, of one hour, up to one hour, as well as to make copies and, and to print things.
4: What went into this decision, and was this a decision that you were alone had to approve? Did you have to also get approval from the state? Did you reach out to health officials? What went into coming up with at least this type of plan for now?
2: Well, we were watching the CDC guidelines. We were also looking at the positivity levels as they were announced and recorded by the Fulton County Board of Health, and that made a huge difference. Of course, we have to talk with our board of trustees and our board of commissioners, our county leadership led by our county manager, Dick Anderson. And so in doing so, we just talked about just what what we wanted to do and how we wanted to do it. We were trying to make sure that we wouldn't have to open and close again, because that has happened in a lot of entities, especially in some libraries around the nation. So we were concerned that that would not be the case. And then I just got with the administrative team of the library. We were already open on Saturdays, 10 to 4. And we were already open 10 to 7 on Tuesdays. So the upper thing, the uppermost thing in my mind was to be sure that people who work can come in after work and that people who are, all, who are working or doing whatever they may do during the week would have an opportunity to come particularly with children on Saturdays. So that was really the, imp, the impetus behind it all.
4: Let's start with your employees first before because when the library was closed, you all had employees obviously who weren't working. You all were still able to pay them? Oh,
2: definitely. Our Board of Commissioners and our County Manager have just been so wonderful in the sense that people were not laid off, we were not furloughed. What we were able to do was we were able to we were able to provide um, teleworking opportunities for our staff at, at all levels, so that they kept busy. And we increased our virtual programming. People just the staff stepped up like you would not believe. I mean, it has been phenomenal. I think they surprised themselves. And we were able to put on so much, so many more programs that we would have done otherwise. And because we were so uh, uh, good at that, and, and the response from the public was so good, it allowed us to be given more money from the Board of Commissioners to increase our spending for virtual resources. But uh the, the staff did not stop. The staff is there, they were they're working, they were working uh, Mondays through, through Saturdays all this time doing curbside mm-hmm. service. So now we're just adding this other piece on Tuesdays and
4: Saturdays. Let's talk about then safety precautions for the public. Obviously, Governor Brian Kemp has eased some restrictions as it relates to COVID-19. What are you all requiring of your patrons when they come into Fulton County Libraries?
2: Fulton County itself has mandated that we would all wear masks. That includes the staff and the public. So we're still doing that and expecting that. The staff will be wearing it and are and have been all this time even at curbside.
4: And what about it just in terms of, of ensuring, you know, in terms of safety? Are you going to have hand sanitizer and all that still?
2: We still have hand sanitizer stations. Uh, we will also have uh, the opportunity to, to give a mask to a patient who may come in they've forgotten theirs. And uh, we are respectfully asking that they would observe the wearing of them. So that's really how we are approaching it at this time.
4: Let's go back to that first day when you all were reopening. What were you hearing from branches?
2: I was hearing very positive things. Of course, you know, Tuesday was a very rainy day. So we think the rain may have held some people uh, back. But we had 200 to 300 people at some of our libraries that day. It was amazing. And some, a little bit smaller in number. But people were there. I think some may not have gotten the word. Uh, we put it out all through our website and uh, signage and all of that but uh, we really think the weather was, was the case in some of the libraries, but people responded. It was amazing. We had no difficulties. We didn't have anyone who was a negative. We had people who, um, who just was just excited to just be there and to have it open again.
4: And Director Holliman, I am curious in terms of the staff and, and vaccinations, are you all requiring the staff to be vaccinated? We're not requiring
2: it. We are encouraging it just as um, a lot of places are doing. I don't know that uh, the law will allow us to require it. Mm-hmm. So uh, that that has been pushed around around the nation with some library systems uh, in, in debate. But uh, we are expecting and, and, and encouraging staff to get vaccinated.
4: If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Fulton County Library Director Gail Holloman. And in case y'all don't know, the libraries in Fulton County will be open for two days now. Director Holliman, let's talk about what patrons can now expect. You mentioned you, you are limiting browsing on the computers um, up to one hour.
2: Yes. Well, they can expect to come in and be able to, to look around, and browse the shelves, select their items, and we hope they can do so within an hour. Uh, we're not uh, expecting them to, to sit and as as they normally would with a magazine or a book or whatever, or just stand around and chat. We need people to kind of come in and move out. Uh, we, we are somewhat limiting the number of people per hour. That has not posed a problem thus far, but we know that we have to be concerned about that. Also, also the thing about it is um, the when they come inside, they can also get on computers now. We did have to take about half of the computers out of service so that we can observe social distancing. Mm-hmm. And so they won't be able to get on e- every single one of the computers. But they will have access up to one hour.
4: But you all also have copy machines and and things of that nature, too. Will those devices still be available for patrons?
2: Yes. They can still make copies and print, uh, come in and and just make copies. They can print from their computer. All of that's still available.
4: And one great thing about a library for a community is that it can be a meeting space. It can be a study room, a meeting room. Are those options available right now?
2: No, they're not right now, Rose. Those, um, those are very hard to keep clean after people leave. Uh, we are, we have enhanced our cleaning. We do have day borders, uh, uh on a regular schedule. However, it's going to be quite difficult for us to maintain that right now. So what's happening is that there won't be any programs, uh, in, internal programs right now. There will not be uh, meeting rooms, conference rooms, and study rooms available to the public right now. However, we are expecting that come June 1, we're planning to go back to our pre-COVID operations.
4: Well, I'm going to get to June 1 in just a moment, but I also want to make sure folks understand what they can and cannot expect. Obviously, too, at the libraries, you have those wonderful lounge areas and reading rooms. I know I've been in there. I felt like I was at home just chilling, reading a book. Are those options available right now? Not right now. So let's talk about June 1st and when you all all will return to the, quote, pre-COVID days, what will that look like?
2: What's going to happen there is that we are expecting that everything will be back to normal to where people can come in, they can go into all the resources, they'll be able to to go into meeting rooms and study rooms and conference rooms. All of those locations will be open again. The Central Library, however, is still being prepared because it's not open uh, just yet. The renovations uh, for the interior have been completed now, but the staff is involved and seriously engaged in making sure we prepare the building for uh, people to return. So that will not happen until the fall.
4: And that is going to be a great celebration. The downtown library, the central library, so much went into making sure that one, the library could remain there. And then the money that the funding that went into it, that's going to be a big celebration in the fall. We hope to be there as well. You mentioned that everything, you. you mentioned that everything staying the way it is in terms of being able to open June 1st. Do you have any concerns, even though it's really less than a month away, do you have any concerns that we could see another spike or anything that could happen which would delay the Fulton County Libraries returning to their normal operations? What concerns do you have?
2: Well, that's a concern, not as much as it would have been maybe, say, a month ago. But I think we're we're headed, we, we know we're headed in the right direction as far as the positivity rates go. So if that continues, then we don't think that there will be a problem unless something major comes up that the Board of Health makes us aware of, the CDC, the governor's office, or some, some entity of which we uh, really pay close attention, then we, are, we think we're on target for that. But I would like to let the, the public know that this is fluid, it has been. And that's what happened with the, the whole getting to the point of May 4th, when we reopened in the way that we have. Uh, we're doing what we think is the best point of action, the the best action for us at this moment. And we will continue to observe everything that's been put in front of us so that we can continue to make those positive decisions.
4: Here's a question I've asked everyone who has been in some type of leadership role like you are. Lessons learned. You know, what has been some lessons you've learned throughout all of this?
2: Well, lessons learned have been just how um, flexible people can be if you ask them. And I think that was something that in my mind was a little surprising because I've worked for a long time in this library system and I've worked with a lot of the staff for a long time, uh, not necessarily one-on-one all the time, but some I have and some I haven't, but just the idea that when well, you think you know people and you sometimes we sum people up and you can't do that. You really have to be very careful not to do that. So I think one of the things that I learned the most is that people are flexible. And especially if you bring the case to them, You let them know what we're about. And they may not always agree, but they will step up. And that's what I saw happen. And I'm very proud of the staff of the Fulton County Library System.
4: And finally, I always want to ask this. What have you been reading lately? What books got you through the pandemic? Or what are you looking forward to
2: Well, I I tell you a couple of things. I I finished a book a few few weeks back, a few months back, actually, uh, by Lucy Foley. It's called The Guest List. And I'm not normally a mystery reader. I will watch a mystery movie, but I'm not usually a mystery reader. But somehow it caught my attention one day and I said, I think I might read this book. And it was so good. I was just to the end of the book. I could not believe that it turned out the way it did because I thought I had another idea of how it was going to end up. So a very, very good mystery writer. And I enjoyed that a lot. But what I'm really looking forward to right now, and it's on my nightstand, is to read Cicely Tyson's autobiography. It's mm-hmm. called Just As I Am. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I, I have it and I've had it for like ever since it came out. And I'm just, you know, you have to find time. People think we sit around and we read all day at the library. No. They always <laughs> say, oh, you get to read books. And I'm like, no way. So as soon as I have some one o'clock in the morning time, I'll start reading, reading Sister Sicily's book.
4: And it is a great read, let me tell you. Gail Hunter Holliman, Executive Director for the Fulton County Library System. Thank you so much for taking the time. Good news for those who... Wanna to return to using all the great resources that you all provide in, in all libraries throughout the nation. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've heard the term micro mobility revolution. Well at Georgia State University there's a micro mobility lab. And at the moment, there aren't a lot of them in the nation, but we're gonna find out what's taking place inside that micro mobility lab. And joining me now with more is Chris Vich Elkowski. He's a manager of research and and analysis from Marta and also an affiliate faculty member with the Urban Studies Institute at Georgia State University and Professor Deja Oakley who returns to the program. She's a professor of sociology and also a faculty member of the Urban Studies Institute. Thank you both for taking the time. I appreciate it.
5: Thanks. Thanks, Rose. Thanks,
1: uh, Rose. Great to be here.
4: Yeah, let's let's start with this whole concept and ideology of micromobility. Do you still think it's fairly new for some folks and they're trying to grasp exactly what this micro mobility revolution is all about uh, Professor Oakley, you go first
5: uh, It's becoming more common it's not as strange as it was when they seemed to drop out of the sky in 2018 or so um, they did disappear during the pandemic or at least at the beginning and now they're out in full force again so. I think people might not understand if you use the term micro mobility, but they will understand if you say bird scooters hmm. or velocity bicycles or whatever else is that. Chris is more up on what's out there now because it's always changing.
4: Professor, um, okay. Well, Professor Chris, let's talk about that. That someone says, okay, explain to me what this micro mobility revolution is all about here.
1: Sure. Well, I think. One thing that we have to understand is that this isn't really all that new. E-scooters were actually with us way back in the early 1900s. Um, They actually were used to deliver mail. And then they kind of went away uh, for, you know, a hundred years or so. Uh, And now they're back. But micro mobility isn't just about scooters. Mm -hmm. It's really about getting around in general. Like it's that first last mile connectivity. And, And the way that I would, think about micro mobility is, or at least one way to do it is it's a multimodal catalyst. It really mm-hmm. connects, you know, that first last mile for public transportation, the first last mile for parking. So explaining micro mobility really is, you know, that that connectivity at the, at the very micro level.
4: Through your lens, and Chris, I'll stay with you, is the nation behind other nations when it comes to integrating micro mobility into its entire transit landscape or, or transit plan so to speak
1: well i think we're behind in a in multi-mobility the multimodal um transportation in general right we're very reliant on cars in the united states Our mm-hmm. cities are low density so this is the main issue um in, in that way we are certainly behind um and as far as bicycle infrastructure the use of bicycles because let's remember bicycles are also a micro mobility device mm-hmm. um, even though now with this due pandemic, we're, we're seeing more and more people using bicycles. You know, prices of bicycles have gone up. E-bicycles have been introduced. Um, so from a multimodal standpoint, we're definitely behind uh, other other nations. Here.
4: Professor Oakley, real quickly before I move on to the next question, your viewpoint. Where This nation, we're behind in terms of other nations?
5: Well, it's hard to say because um, we all haven't been able to travel. Um Very much. But, but in, you know, if you look at European cities, they're more densely populated, they're walkable. They already have very uh, intricate public transportation systems. So whether they have micromobility or not, I mean, some cities banned it -hmm. uh, Overseas, Uh, it would be a lot easier. Hypothetically, it would be a lot easier for them to integrate with Existing public transportation,
4: Chris. So, at the micro mobility lab at Georgia State, you all are sort of looking at all the intersections, all the tentacles, as we use that word a lot here on this program. All the tentacles tied to micro mobility, quality of life. And you can give a better, I'm sure, definition than what I just gave. But what is at the core of this micro mobility lab?
1: Well, at the at the core of the lab, what we're trying to do is answer questions really as you describe with these tentacles because it connects you know different different modes Uh, it allows people to get around so at georgia state you have to realize where we're located we're located at probably the most connected area in the city of atlanta Mm -hmm. we have uh, marta stations you know throughout the campus heavy rail marta stations Mm -hmm. we have bus stop connections Uh, georgia state has parking lots which have to be connected we have bike lanes um and uh we, we're also connected you know to highways and we have a student body which is young able bodied and able to get around so it's it's with micro, with this micro mobility lab we're exploring questions research questions but we're also trying to understand uh from the student's perspective you know what do they see how, mm-hmm. how are they using it because truly if you're going to make micro-mobility work in a place like Georgia State that's in the middle of the city, that's walkable, that's connected with a with a young student body, if it's going to work somewhere, it should work there to make those connections.
4: Recently on the program, and I spoke with Shannon Delaney, who's with SPIN, which is a, a e-scooter, the mobile, the micro-mobility division of Ford Motor Company. She talked about one of the initiatives they were going to look at was the issue of equity in all of this. And, you know, one would think what, well, let's be clear, when it comes to any issue, equity is always uh, an issue that folks want to take a look at. As it relates to equity and micromobility, what will y'all be doing at Georgia State? Professor Oakley?
5: Yes, uh, thanks for that question, Rose. Uh, yes, that's one of our research questions um, about, basically, the, the city of Atlanta, as as everybody knows who's listening Is very unequal, and you can you can track that with the racial composition of neighborhoods. And so even though the the companies, the micromobility companies, have to sign equity agreements with the city, they don't always drop everywhere. Mm -hmm. So there may be neighborhoods where they won't drop, and one of the reasons why is what the street infrastructure looks like. If there's potholes, if the streets are narrow, um, they don't want that liability. And unfortunately, what that means is that equity becomes, you know, race-based. <laughs> um, one of the questions, we're, we're interested in that, of course. The thing is, it's changing all the time because of all the development that's going on. So one of the other questions we want to answer is how is micromobility following development
4: mm-hmm.
5: at a community meeting in people's town last weekend and um there were scooters and velocity bikes all over the place i would say 2 years ago or a year ago that wouldn't have been the case mm-hmm. but with all the gentrification and infrastructure improvements they're dropping there now.
4: So Chris, let me ask you this with sticking with the equity piece in this, how do you all plan to be maybe this convener or plan to be the curator of all of this and bringing this issue to light and, and also maybe being the bridge between the communities, the neighborhoods and these you know micro mobility operators whether they're e-scooters or the e-bikes, what role can y'all play in in improving that for those communities? Because you can't, so Rose, unfortunately, you can't pass legislation to fix roads, but maybe you could ask the city council
1: to do it. So, Rose, you you actually hit the nail on the head. One of the key kind of tenets of the Mobility Lab is that we are a partnership between, you know, uh, the academic institution, but also to communities and, you know, the public institutions that we have in Atlanta. I was a uh, public transit advocate for, you know, starting in the early 2000s. Um, so I have some some connections to uh, to these to all these groups. We had a bicycle coalition, Marta Army, uh, peds, right? these are these are the groups that we some of the groups that we have in Atlanta that really um, are connected to the community and you know push hard to have an impact. So certainly, when we write grants, we we bring these people in to get their insight.
4: Chris, let me say with you, how big is the, the the lab in terms of folks who are working there? And is it a combination of students and professors?
1: Great question. Yes, it's it's actually an interdisciplinary lab. That's one of the things that we pride ourselves on. I mentioned the community uh, aspect of, of you know, so to, to diversify the things that we think about. But we have uh, you know, when we started this lab, Deirdre and I realized very quickly that there's a lot of overlap with what we're doing. For example, as part of the lab, we have people who st- in the law school. Right, who look at uh, micro mobility from a policy, a law perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of our members is in the film school, so his research is is more aligned with with understanding, you know, uh, the, the film side of things. Deirdre obviously is a sociologist, um, so she looks at very closely. And I should let her say this, but she looks at the equity side of things, which which you've heard a moment ago. Mm-hmm. Um, we have uh, people from from public policy um, and the Urban Studies Institute, where the lab is housed is actually an interdisciplinary unit within Georgia State University.
4: And, and as we wrap up, and Deidre, uh, Professor Oakley, I'll, I'll start with you, let you answer this. Then how do you gauge the success and effectiveness of, of this institute, we, of the lab? We know people saying, listen, okay, it sounds important, but then how do you, you know, what metrics do y'all use to say, hey, you know, this lab is doing something that's very important for the community, for society at large?
5: Well, we're we're in our infancy. Um, so we have big dreams, uh, but you know, we've already taught a studio class on micromobility and we've done some surveys. I just want to, just as a point of trivia that I think the listeners would like to hear when we did a focus group with, uh, GSU students, mm-hmm. number one reason why they used the micromobility, mostly scooters was so they wouldn't be late to class. What? <laughs> <laughs> but- so we're we're actually regrouping now, yeah. um, as the pandemic hopefully is getting under control, to figure out like where we're going to go next now that we can be out in the community.
4: Mm-hmm. Professor Chris, what about you? What do you see this hopefully this this lab will will the role that will play in the future?
1: Well, I think a lot of it is raising awareness, um, identifying questions that haven't been asked yet. Um, and, and I would think that one of the markers would be how many students get involved, um, how much participation we get in, in the in the surveys that, that we do on a, a continual basis. Um, so these are some of the things. And of course, are people using these things more? Do we see more of these scooters? And are they being tied to mobility as opposed to just a fun ride?
4: Absolutely. And everyone keeps telling me that. So we will definitely bring you all back to talk more about the initiatives you have Chris Vich Elkowski is the manager of research and analysis for Marta, but he's also an affiliate faculty member with the Urban Studies Institute at Georgia State University, and Professor Deidre Oakley, Professor of Sociology and faculty member of the Urban Studies Institute. And they are both part of a fabulous group of folks at the Micro Mobility Lab at Georgia State University. Thank you both for coming on and taking the time. I really appreciate it.
5: Hey, thanks, Rose. It's good to see you again.
1: All right. Thank, thank you, Rose. You. My pleasure. Thank you, Rose.
4: Take care now and that's it for this edition of closer look and today we say not goodbye but good luck to a member of the closer look team grace walker producer proud fan of the uga bulldogs the pride of blue ridge georgia fellow granola bar connoisseur she's starting a new chapter in what is already an incredible incredible year we will miss you grace but certainly wish you the best. Kevin, can we open Grace's mic for a moment? And so for the last time, we say Closer Look is produced by Grace Walker, LaShawn Hudson, Kevin Rinker is our engineer. Grace, we're going to miss you.
3: I will miss the Closer Look team so much. Thank you, Rose.
4: And the Bulldogs are not going to win a championship. Go dogs. (laughs) If you missed any of the day's program, it's online at wabe.org/closerlook, and of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m., as well as in our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from
1: WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raúl Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform.
3: WABE.